Okay, so um, we don't support them, by the way, <laughs> as missionaries. Uh, but, but here's the deal. Um, as we wrap up our, our letter uh, that, that Paul writes to Timothy, uh, there's a couple things that we need to note. One, um, not about the letter, just so you know, John Christ is a funny guy, okay? He's got lots of fun videos. You can watch them all. But, but the important thing is that that Christian life that you see, that mission that you see, unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think of when they think about um, the church and service, is that it's, it's silly and it's goofy and it's self-serving and that it's more about us than it is about the people that we're supposed to minister to. And, and that's something that we, whether we've earned it or not, see, we got to understand this. That's something that we have to deal with. We have to be the ones that understand that the cultural perception of Christians on mission is either that they're intolerable and hard to get along with, or that they're flaky and self-serving. And this is something that we have to wrestle with. And when we get to our our scripture today, we're going to see that Paul says, I am good. I have run the race. I have finished everything that was set before me. I have done everything that God has instructed me to do. And he's going to give us these famous last words. Um, and, and I think that we're going to see that we can be clear that Paul has taken his mission seriously. And that when we understand that, that it can give us courage to take our mission seriously Uh, And when you take a mission seriously, here's what you need to understand. It is not about how successful you are when you grade out. But it's about how passionate you are and how excellently you do the ministry that God has given you to do. And so there's a difference, and we're going to understand that as as we we break this apart today. But um, we are entering chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. Uh, Chapter 4 is at the end of the letter. So this week and next week, we're going to be delving into the last inspired words uh, that Paul writes uh, before his execution. You'll remember at this time, it's about 66 AD when he's writing this letter. And uh, he is in prison in Rome for the second time. Um, And he's about to be executed by Emperor Nero. Persecution of Christians is on the rise. And he knows this is happening. And so he knows as he writes this letter, we've said this in the series already, it's his last will and testament. It's his last instructions to his son in the faith that he loves. Um, And he's writing about the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus used to be a model church. The church in Ephesus used to be a church that that others looked to for guidance. But what's happened in these days where Paul is in jail is that um, persecution of Christians in the empire has increased so dramatically that many um, are walking away and abandoning the church. Or they're attempting to compromise in the church to avoid persecution. Many of them are leaders and what we would have called mature Christians. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to fix what is broken in Ephesus, and we get to learn from that because uh, the persecution of Christians um, today is no less than it was then in most of the world. 
here in this country, we don't really understand what it means to be persecuted as a Christian. We're kind of like that. Like, hey, somebody told me to take off my cross necklace. Um, turns out they were trying to save my life. Uh, but we, we would look at those kinds of things, minor kinds of things as persecutions, because we don't know any better. We don't know any different, and that's okay. Um, that's a blessing from God that we live in a country where we get to minister and talk about the gospel freely. And the persecutions that we endure are when people make fun of us. The persecutions that we endure are when family members think badly of us. The persecutions we endure are when we have to listen to late night talk show hosts mock us a little bit. And those are real, but that's not persecution like is happening in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, persecution is happening. Lives are at stake. Claiming the gospel of Jesus Christ costs you or could cost you everything. It costs you um, all of your social and financial relationships. It can cost you your home. It can cost you your, your spouse and children. It can cost you your life. And that's, the, that's the, the context that Paul's writing in. Following the God of the universe and proclaiming the truth of the gospel is about to cost him his life, and he knows it. Okay, and so what we're going to read today are his last words. And last words are kind of important. Last words um, have a tendency to be something pretty um, profoundly vital. Last words, in a, in a lot of ways... Um, Last words, in a lot of ways, are more honest and real than the things we say as we live, because it kind of strips away all pretense, and it's just humbly who we are. There's no reason to hide. And Paul's last words instruct Timothy, look, Timothy, this was never about you. Everything is about God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. God. That's Paul's charge to Timothy, and it's Paul's charge to us. It's Paul's charge to Christians all of the time that says, even in the face of persecution, even when the going gets tough, even when there is pushback, even when it's difficult, here is the truth. Here's what you need to understand. Everything that you do, whether you're eating or drinking, this is normal behavior, your normal behavior, your normal everyday stuff. When you get down, when you lay up, think Deuteronomy 6 here and the way that we're to teach our children. When you, when you wake up, when you stand up, when you walk out of your door, when you sit down at a meal, when you eat, when you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, for the glory of the Lord, because if you want to win at life, the way to win at life, listen to me now, you, you can't miss this, you have to understand this, if you want to win at life, the way that you win at life is to do everything that you do for the glory of the Lord, every single thing for the glory of the Lord. This should sound familiar. This should sound a lot like what we talk about when we say that whatever you do, you are missionaries, right? You, when you go home, you are missionaries in your neighborhood. When you go to work, you're a missionary um, at, your, at your job place, in your cubicles, in your office. When you uh, go fishing with your buddies, you're a missionary fishing with your buddies. When you go to a college dorm room, you are a missionary there in the college dorm room. When you grace the halls of high school, whatever it is, wherever you go, you are a missionary there. Your whole life is to be spent to the glory of the Lord. And Paul sums that up and he says, if you want to win at life, arrogantly, we might say, but I think accurately, if you want to win at life, 
like I did, is what he says. If you want to win at life like I did, then you do everything, eat, drink, whatever, for the glory of the Lord. And what Paul says there in all of this letter to Timothy, what we understand is that not once has Paul ever um, talked about the things that we use in this culture as measurement, right? Um, Paul has not once talked to Timothy about his visible success as a pastor. Instead, he's, he's talked about the excellence of Timothy's service and his heart. Paul has not once um, talked about the opportunities that Timothy has generated, uh, but instead his godliness and his righteousness. He's not talked about his um, personal prominence. He's not talked about how well accepted or how his reputation is. Instead, he's talked about his character and the spiritual health and life of the church that he pastors in Ephesus. Everything that Paul is instructing to Timothy is about this idea. Winning. Winning as an individual. Winning as a family. Winning as a church. Is that whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Not for our own personal success. Not so that we can boast in ourselves, not so that we can puff ourselves up, but simply so that we can say that in everything we've done, God was first. Now, I'm going to let that lie there for a second, because there's something that happens when we say that everything that we do needs to be done to the glory of God. There is, I think, especially in this culture, there is this wild disconnect between that piece of information that I know and understand because the Bible says it, and if the Bible says it, it must be true. I mean, it's right there, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. I know this to be true. But not many of us, okay, and, 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 and I'm not trying to offend or throw stones. This is, this is me personally, too, a lot of times. Not many of us will pick that up. Not many of us will pick that up and will make that the call of our life. Not many of us will pick up this truth that whatever I do, no matter what the thing is that I do, it ought to be done for the glory of the Lord. We don't pick that up and make it the mantle of our lives. If we did, our relationships would look a little different. The things we put in our bodies would look a little different. The way I talk to people or about people would be a little bit different. The things that I did when I thought I was alone would look a little bit different. The relationships that I have would look a little bit different. So it sits there on the floor in front of you, and, and you know what? Again, metaphorically, there's nothing on the floor in front of you. But, but you can pick it up, or you can leave it lie. But as Paul gets into this last chunk of this letter here, there's something that you need to understand. A decision must be made for you to either pick it up and carry this mantle of whatever I do, I will do it for the glory of God, or you must make a decision to leave it on the ground. What you cannot do, what so many of us try to do, what I wrestle with week in, week out, is taking a chop saw to that thing shaving off the edges, cutting it into pieces, and saying, whatever I do in this area, I will do it to the glory of the Lord. Whatever I do in the privacy of my own home, that's none of the Lord's business. 
That's unacceptable. So in rubber meets the road moment here, you either pick up the mantle and you take it with you and you champion it. Not perfectly, we won't do it perfectly, but it's our charge that we win at life by knowing that whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. Or we leave it lie there and say, we're not ready. But we don't break it apart and kid ourselves. Okay? And so Paul says this. He, he says um, to Timothy as they, as they get moving forward here, he's going to give him a charge uh, in chapter 4, you can go ahead and turn there now. He's going to give him a charge, like this is the way that you are to be. But before he does that, he basically says, and, and here is the summative statement of my life. Okay, and so we're actually going to look at this text backwards today uh, because I think it flows better for us to understand because what happens in the text is uh, in Timothy, Second uh, Timothy 4, 1, Paul starts to say, Timothy, here's the charge I have for you. And then we get to verse 6 and he says, and here's why. We're going to start with the why. So we're going to start with verse 6. So you go ahead and flip there. You can follow along on the screen if you want. We're going to skip a couple of things. You can follow along on the screen if you want. Um, And I'm going to read the first three verses for you here in the text. Starting in 6. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. And so what Paul says here in this text is, if you want to know how to win at life, then here is the recipe. He says, uh, this is how I'm going to win at life. He says, this is where I'm at. This is what I've done. He breaks it into, this is my present, man. This is where I'm at. And then he shows us his past. This is where I've been. And then he, he gives this grand picture of the future because he knows what's coming. He has won, right? He knows that he has won. And so these are his famous last words. These are the last Um, inspired words that we're going to have of Paul in this chapter. And he's going to say, this is where I'm at. I'm at the end of my life and I have confidence. Last words are a big deal. If you think about some last words, here's what Napoleon says with his last words. I die before my time. It's tragic. By the way, if you know, like his death, he considered it to be a tragic loss to the world. Um, He didn't accomplish the things that he set out to accomplish. He hadn't won what he intended to win. He considered his life waste and ruin that it was over. I die before my time. My body will be given back to the earth to become the food of worms. Such is the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon. Despondent and despair. Look at Gandhi. Here's what he said. We, we, liked, we talk about Gandhi all the time. Not here in the church we don't, but man, that guy was enlightened. He knew how to live life. He was great. We should all want to be like Gandhi. At the end of his life, he was in despair. My days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slew of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. And of course, we know he didn't find it. See, here's what we need to wrestle with. Last words matter people that we might say, well, they had it figured out. They understood what life was all about. They chose good things. They chose better things. At the end, they're saying, I'm in darkness. But Paul, 
at the end of his life. I'm going to read it to you again. Paul, at the end of his life, he sees it differently. At the end of Paul's life, he says this, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. With Paul, there is no confusion about where he's at. There is no despondency about where he finds himself. He knows that he has picked up a mantle that says everything I do, whether I eat, whether I drink, whether I party, whether I go to bed early, whether I get up early in the morning, whatever I do when I go to work, when I go have family engagements, whatever I do, I do it for the glory of the Lord. Paul has carried that mantle. And so at this point in time, you can say, my life is over. But there isn't despair. There's not despondency. There's not frustration. There's not hopelessness. There is nothing but a joy that exudes from him because he knows that he has won. Okay, and so we're going to break this apart. Let's, let's get into it a little bit here. Okay, um, in six, he starts with the present. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. He starts simply by saying, I'm going to die. In the present, right now, Paul says, I'm going to die. What Paul is thinking is, I could die today. I might die tomorrow. But my imminent death is certain. He knows this. The Holy Spirit has communicated clearly to him. He knows where he's at. He knows what's happening. He knows the persecution in the empire. He knows that Nero has him in jail. He knows that he is not recanted to say that there is more than one God. He is not recanted to say that Nero is God. And so he knows that his life is over. And he says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. See why that's important? Is because death in this state doesn't matter to Paul. The reason that he is not afraid to die in the name of Christ right now, you got to get this. The reason he is not afraid to die in the name of Christ is because he made a decision a long time ago that he was already dead in Christ. And so when he says, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God, he made that decision. And so he has lived every single day of his life, understanding that his life was not his own, that it did not belong to him. Uh, he's putting into practice the things that Jesus said. When Jesus said, hey, you, you want to live, then you need to die. You want to follow me? Then you need to pick up your cross, a symbol of death. Die to yourself and follow me with your life. Paul took that to heart. Look what he said in Romans 12, 1. He said, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So Paul made a habit of not only doing, but saying to everybody else, hey, follow me in this, do this with me. Give your body to Christ as a living sacrifice. And he's done it every day of his life. And now he says, I'm going to do it in my death. And battle scars, you know the thing about battle scars is they're kind of a badge of honor. And Paul has worn battle scars. We've talked about this. You read about it in 1 Corinthians. I mean, he's been shipwrecked. He spent a night adrift in, in the ocean or in the sea. 
Um, Paul has been whipped. He's been beaten with rods. He's been stoned. He's been drugged outside the city and left for dead. He's been persecuted. He's dealt with fear and torment from the enemy. He's dealt with pressure all around. He's got battle scars. And now he's about to carry the most honorable... I mean, this is sound a little morbid, but the most honorable end for a soldier, especially in this context, especially in this time, the most honorable end for a soldier was to die defending your king in the line of duty. We've got a lot of marathon runners here. Who, who has ever run or is planning to run a marathon? Man, there's only like three of you. Raise your hand. There's more of you here. You're all at the state fair today, apparently. Probably you ran there, okay? Because uh, I know there's more than three of you. Uh, but, but here's what happens. So um, you guys know where the idea of marathon came from? Where the term marathon and the length of the race comes from? In uh, 409 BC, you've got uh, uh, Persia with King Darius at the helm invading Greece. And Greece won an important victory in uh, the small coastal town of Marathon. It was a tide changer in uh, the war and uh, in the, the moving of world powers. It was, it was uh, just this huge momentum changer, and this was a big victory, and news ne needed to be taken to Athens quickly. And so a soldier was dispatched after the, the battle was over and Greece had been victorious over Persia. A soldier was, was dispatched from the battlefield in the coastal town of Marathon to Athens, which was about 26 and a third miles to deliver the message. And he would get there and he delivers the message of the victory, but he ran with such abandon and such force and such passion, not stopping at all. He ran to deliver the message that um, good tradition tells us that upon delivering the message, he dropped dead. And so he was honored because he poured his life out for uh, in sacrifice as a soldier. And the most noble thing that he could do is giving his life in service of the cause. Uh, and so marathons were run. Um, in his honor, which has become a thing that apparently we do now. So when you're running a marathon, I want you to remember that you're running 26.2 miles to celebrate a guy who ran 26.2 miles and then dropped dead. <laughs> so I'm not sure how you reconcile that, but good luck. But Paul, Paul has poured his life out and he is about ready to die in service to his king. And he knows that that means he is one at life. Whatever he has done, he has done to the glory of God. And now he will die to the glory of God. And he, he keeps going then uh, in 2 Timothy 4, 7. And he talks about the past. He says, look, I know that I'm winning. I know that I'm dying to the glory of God because I have done well. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. Right? There's four things there that you can key on in just that one text. Paul says, man, I have fought. Some of you, you're not sure the Christian life is worth fighting for. Some of you are all good with the Christian. You're like the Christians in Ephesus. You're all good. You are all done with the church and you are all good until, until it gets hard. And then you're not sure it's worth fighting for. But Paul says, man, no, 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 here's the thing. You want to win at life? You got to follow this. Man, I have fought. 
And Paul fought, man, Paul fought Satan. Paul fought Jews. Paul fought apostasy. Paul fought world powers. Paul fought compromise. Paul fought uh, everything that you could think of. Paul fought his own demons and fears, but Paul fought. And not only that, he says, man, I fought and I am confident that what I fought for was good. I have fought on the right side of things. And Paul can say confidently that I have fought on the right side of things. I have fought the good fight because he fought in God's name. And I want you to think about what that means because we can relate to this. There are things that would have been easier for Paul to choose. See, it's easy for us to say, well, how do we know what's right? How do we know what's right when it comes time to fight for something? How do I know what's right? And so we kind of shrink back and we don't fight. But Paul said, I know what's good. I fought the good fight, and the good fight made it hard for him to live the life that he wanted to live. I mean, let's, let's be honest. For him, fighting the good fight caused him torment and hardship and pain and suffering and poverty. Fighting the good fight for Paul cost him all of these things, but he, because he wanted to win at life, he said, man, I continued to fight. I fought the good fight, and I know it was right because it wasn't easy. He says, I finished the race. I kept my eyes fixed. I stayed on the path. I didn't wander. I didn't deviate. We talked about this earlier in the series. The author of Hebrews says this, man, you want to run the race, you've got to 12.1, 12.1, Hebrews 12.1, you've got to strip off the sin that entangles and everything that hinders you along the way. You know what's interesting? There's two things there. One is you've got to strip off the sin that tangles you up, the sin that ties you up, but, and it's not sin, you also need to get rid of everything that hinders you in the race. See, some of us, we like to get legalistic here. We're like, okay, well, I want to be really careful. I'm not going to sin, but you won't throw off the things that will hinder you or hold you back in your faith. They're not sinful. They might even be okay things, but they still hold you back. We've traded running the race for some things that will slow us down or sidetrack us along the way. Sometimes, you know, we trade running the race for a set of golf clubs because we like to golf and golf is fun. And there's nothing sinful about golf. And you know what? A Sunday morning tea time at 930 there's nobody else out there. And so it's nice. Or we, or, you know, we, we strip off sin because we know we shouldn't sin, but yet we, we keep relationships around us that we probably shouldn't have, or, or we keep um, connections that we probably shouldn't have, or we, it's not sin, but we really love to watch these TV shows that probably we shouldn't watch because they end up drawing us away or putting us in. This is what we do. But Paul says, if you're going to win, you have to fight. You have to fight the right fight, the good fight, and you have to finish the race. You have to run, which means you let sin go, and you also let some good things go. Because not every good thing, not every okay thing will help you finish. And then he says, you know what? And you got to remain faithful. You can't compromise and you can't give up. And then he finishes. So, so that's, that's my present, is I am actively dying. I'm being poured out like a drink offering because my life has been forfeit to Christ since the beginning. And I have run the race, and I have fought the good fight, and I am finishing. I am winning at life. Okay? And then this. And now I know in the future that because of that, a prize awaits me. 
It's the crown of righteousness. At the time, Paul's thinking about the, the Roman games. And when you won the Roman games, you were given a laurel wreath that you would wear around your head, a crown. Okay, And of course, the crown would fade, but the accolades from the crown, there was no greater prize to win in Rome in contest would be this laurel wreath that you would wear around your head. And, and there was no greater prize. And, and the flowers would fade and they would die. But the accolades would go on. And it came with, with a cash prize too. Okay? But the symbol of your victory was the crown that would be placed on your head. And Paul says, I... I am about to get the prize, not a crown of flowers that will fade and die, but I am about to get a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. He will put it on my head on the day that he returns. Paul says, I know it for a fact. It is my certain future. Listen to me. You know what makes it so easy to pick up that that thing that we put on the floor in front of you that says everything I do, whether eating or drinking or whatever it is, I do it for the glory of God. What makes it so easy to pick that up and have it as your mantra in life? It's knowing this. It's knowing what will happen at the end. Listen to me, church. Do not sacrifice eternal joy for momentary fleeting pleasure. Don't do it. Because that's what's at stake here. Paul says, I'm winning at life. I know I'm winning at life because I have run this race and the race wasn't easy and I fought the fight and the fight was hard, but I have stuck it out and I have finished and now I am receiving a crown of righteousness that God himself will place on my head for all eternity because I held fast. The alternative to that is I will sacrifice that for momentary pleasure that won't last. This is the call that Paul has. And, and you know what? Honestly, um, it is not easy. This is not an easy thing for us to want to do, to sacrifice day in, day out for something eternal that we can't see and we can't touch. That's why so many people refuse to do it. Because nobody said this was easy to do. It's simple to figure out, but it's not easy to do. But this is the call. And as Paul wraps up this letter, he is with as much fervency and as much passion as he can say to Timothy, lead people this way. I have been down this road. I know what's there. I know how this is. You need to win at life. This is what it looks like. He is passionate about putting this out on people. He says, so this is it. Man, I... Basically, here's what he says. He says, I have lived my life preparing for my death. And and, and that's what it comes down to. And that's what he's asking Timothy to do. And that's what I'm asking you to do, is are you living your life preparing for your death? And it sounds morbid. I know it sounds morbid, but that's what Paul is teaching us here. Paul is teaching us that to win at this life, you live this life in anticipation of the day you die. 
Because if you live this life in anticipation of the day you die, and that's when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, and you're ushered in to the kingdom and you get to live in glory forever and ever in the crown of righteousness placed on your head, it doesn't get better than that. But you have to live this life preparing for your death. Now, if that's not a feel-good message, I don't know what is. I hear that all the time. Like, Matt, you would probably have more people come to church if you would say some positive things every now and then. Or more visitors would choose to come back and stay if you would would preach better things. Um, All I can tell you is what the Word of God tells you. It's all I can share with you. And this is Paul's charge to Timothy. In light of the fact that he's about to die, in light of the fact that he knows how to win at this life, and in light of the fact that Timothy is in a unique position to impact the world for the future of the world, he says to Timothy, so here's what it is, man. I urge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes up to set up his kingdom. He says, in light of all of this, that's a lot of stuff to be in light of, right? I solemnly urge you, based on everything I know about how to win at life and what's about to happen to me and the crown of righteousness that I'm going to get and that I want you to get, and it's that big of a deal. He says, I urge you in the presence of God, who is going to win, who is going to set up his kingdom, because his faith is certain. He says, this is going to happen. I urge you, Timothy, to do this, to preach the word of God. to preach the word of God. You ever wonder why preaching the word of God is so central to the Christian faith? Why it's part of every worship service that we have? Why preaching the word of God is something that we do no matter what it is when we gather? Like we don't have Sunday mornings where we don't preach the word. At least we don't have them very often. We don't have them that I can remember. Sunday mornings where the word is not preached. Why? Because we are instructed by Paul. Hey, Pastor Timothy, this is what you're to do. In light of the fact that my life is forfeit and it's being poured out like a drink offering and I'm going to be with Jesus who's given me a crown of righteous and I am passing this on to you. I am charging you then in the presence of God. And Jesus, who is coming back and who will set up his kingdom, I am charging you, preach the word of God. Simply. That's why you need to be really careful if you end up at a church where this is a secondary thing on a Sunday morning. Where this becomes a secondary thing on a Sunday morning, you know you've got yourself a problem. Um, when, When you find yourself at a place where um, what's being offered to you is self-help philosophy rather than instruction from the word of God. You've got a problem because this is being ignored. When you find yourself at a place where it's like, hey, like here are seven steps to live a happier life. And the word of God is either not mentioned or it's used um, to prove a point every now and then, but it's not the reason for what we're about to hear. You've got yourself a problem because here's what Paul is instructing to Timothy and to pastors. It says, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Okay? 
I think that's not talking about service times either. Like, be prepared, whether it's a Saturday night service or a Sunday morning service, because we don't know. That's not what it's saying. Be prepared, whether it's favorable or not, meaning whether or not people want to hear it or not. Be prepared to preach the whole counsel of God, whether it will get you accolades or whether it will get you on somebody's list. Be prepared to preach the whole will of God through his word, whether or not it will cause people to shake your hand and say, hey, that was awesome, or whether it will cause people to storm out and leave and never come back. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. And here's what he says too. Patiently correct. You ever feel like um, when you come and you sit in a church service that what you hear is always corrective in nature? It's always trying to correct you or push you in a direction. It's always trying to, to make you understand something that you thought you knew but wasn't quite right. Yeah, there's a reason for that. It's because the word of God is corrective in nature. The word of God sheds light on things. The word of God is meant to, to show you where you were thinking wrongly. And so he says, preach the word, whether, whether the time is favorable or not, and patiently correct. When we correct what we do with correction, listen, you got to understand the difference here. When, when we correct, what we're saying with our correction is, hey, what you thought you knew isn't exactly right. Let's look at the word of God. Let's break open the word of God. Let's pour it out so that you can think differently about what you thought you knew. If you've ever been a new Christian, everybody here that's a Christian has been a new Christian. That was a dumb thing to say. When you were a new Christian, that should have happened to you a lot. I remember as a new Christian, I thought I understood a lot of things. But what would happen is, is I would go to church and, and, and I would have my understandings and the pastor would open up the word and he would share things or I would go to Bible study and things would be shared. I would have to change what I thought I knew because the word of God was saying something different and there would be a wrestling match. And God always wins the wrestling match. And so what I thought I knew would be shifted and changed, but then it goes further. Not only do we need to be patiently correcting, but there is a level where you need to be, where people need to be, where it is a pastoral role or a, an authoritative in the church role to rebuke. That's what he says. Preach the word. Be prepared to do it. Patiently correct and then rebuke. See, correction is when I, I show you the word of God and say, look, you're thinking of this wrong. Rebuke is when I say, man, your life is wrong based on what I see here. And man, people hate to be rebuked, but I read this and this is Paul's instruction. Do this, preach the word, patiently correct, rebuke. You got to understand the difference. Oftentimes people don't understand the difference. Let's go through here. Listen, correction, it discloses the sinfulness of the sin. Teaches people to view it rightly. Rebuke discloses the sinfulness of the person and calls them to repent and leave their sin behind. It's the difference. Correction happens on stage. Correction happens in group context where we open up the word of God and the sinfulness of a sin is exposed for what it is and we learn to think about it differently. Rebuke. Rebuke happens as we meet together, as we talk about the way life is being lived. Rebuke happens when we say, remember that thing that we read in scripture? 
your life doesn't match up. That's where rebuke happens. But, but the pastor, the church leader, is called to patiently correct and to patiently rebuke, okay? And they're called to encourage. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Listen to me. If you've ever been rebuked by me or by a leader in the church, I would imagine that it stung. I've been rebuked by leaders in the church before. I've been corrected and rebuked by accountability partners, sometimes by my wife, sometimes just the Holy Spirit. It's not fun to be rebuked, but it's necessary. And when you're rebuked, it comes along with encouragement, encouragement to move forward because there is no damning in your mistake but there is encouragement to move forward in the grace of God and live a life that gives him honor and glory that no matter what you do whether it's eating or drinking that you do it all for the glory of God there's encouragement to move forward so I'm not sure where you find yourself this morning the reason we linger there a little bit is because some of you are always feeling corrected some of you you feel convicted and rebuked if that's you, don't sleep on this last part. There's also encouragement for you. There's encouragement for you to put into practice the things that you know, to find comfort in the grace of God, and to move forward. So we say, well, why can't church be easier? Why, why can't it ever just be positive, feel-goody messages? Man, it doesn't, for me, in my book, it doesn't get more feel-good than that. then be corrected in the way that you think and be rebuked in the way that you behave, but be encouraged that the grace of God Almighty is strong in you and you can move forward in new life with him any time that you want. I don't know that it gets more feel good than that. We finish up the text. There's just a couple of verses left. Uh, this will sound awfully familiar. He said this a lot in this, this, this whole letter. He said this a lot. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen. He's telling, by the way, he's telling uh, Timothy, if you understand and you track the, the thing, hey, I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering. Okay. I'm winning at life. I'm getting a crown of righteousness. So Timothy, you, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God who is right and who is going to win and who is going to come back and set up his kingdom to preach the word of God. Whether it's convenient or not, whether people will like it or not. And preaching the word of God means this, that you correct wrong thinking, that you rebuke wrong behavior, and that you encourage people to move forward in the grace of God in the relationship with Jesus Christ. That we do those things. And he says, that's so critical because a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires. They'll look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myths. We've talked about that a lot in this letter, but you know this to be true. A time is coming where people, enlightened people, they're enlightened, where they will reject good truth. And usually it looks in, in one of three ways. When they reject good truth, first thing they're doing is, is they're rejecting absolute truth. The idea is that there can be true for you and true for me. We just had this conversation. I, I kind of snapped at my mom yesterday. I didn't mean to because she wasn't really saying anything bad. Uh, we were at breakfast. Um, sorry, mom. Um, but what happened is she said something to Aubrey about, well, your perception is your reality. And I was like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
Because reality is reality. I don't care what your perception is, right? You can perceive it wrong if you want to, but reality does not change. Reality is, re- this is what it is, right? But what'll happen is there will be, so I, I, I didn't snap at her. I just wasn't nice about it. Sometimes I'm not as soft as I need to be. Anyway, here's what happened though. Um, Paul says a time is coming where, where people won't see true things. They'll reject this idea of reality, of realness, and there will be true for you and true for me, and that'll be okay. And if you suggest that there is an absolute truth, they will fight and balk. And there's more. Uh, They'll follow their own desires. Here's the deal. They will look for sensational truth, something new and shiny, right? How many times do we hear about a new way to understand scripture, a new way to translate the Bible, a new understanding of something that has been readily understood and accepted for 2,000 years, all of a sudden, some guy in the middle of Iowa figured out a way to understand it better, like nobody else has ever done it before. It's shiny, it's new. And the other thing we'll do here is we look for teaching that tells us we're right. That's what Paul says. He says there'll be a time where people will look for teaching that tells them they're right. And when they find a teaching that tells them they're right, they'll pull that teaching close. And they'll hold that teaching close, and that'll be true because it affirms them, and it tells them they're good. And that's really dangerous in a church like today. It was dangerous then, but it's dangerous now because here's the thing. Ultimately, you pay me. I mean, I know we don't, we don't talk about that kind of thing very often, but, but ultimately you pay me. The elders set the budget, you approve the budget, but it all happens with your giving. You pay me. And so um, if, if all of a the sudden there is pressure to, hey, agree with me here. Hey, isn't this the way we should understand it? And, and there's pressure to say, hey, look, well, if you can't do that, I'm going to go away. And all of a sudden I'm left here with this great job at a great church that nobody attends. And, and, and so there's a pressure to move and compromise. And so Paul says, no, 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 here's what you do, Timothy. You preach the whole counsel of God, and you correct where there needs to be correction, and you rebuke where there needs to be rebuking, and you encourage people to grow in the grace of God and move forward, no matter this, because this is happening, but you don't compromise, Timothy. And he finishes with this, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you, no matter what, because this is the way that you win at life. So I'm going to pray. We're going to close, and we've got one week left in this service, and as we do that, what's going to happen is is, um, uh, Vince is going to come next week, and he is going to share with us how Paul wraps up his final inspired words. Uh, He's going to wrap up the letter with um, some warnings and some accolades for some folks, and and it's really going to be beneficial for us to know what this looks like as we finish up. So I'd encourage you to be here next week, but for now, we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to meditate on this just one thing. Is your life preparing you for your death? Are you in a position where you will win? Will you hear the words from the God of the universe, from God in flesh, from Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant? There's other words that he says. Those words are depart from me, for I never knew you. So you're going to hear, depart from me. I don't know you. Or you are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant.
Are you living your life preparing for your death? I know it's heavy stuff, but it's the full counsel of God. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your instruction. We thank you for the fact that your word does not pull punches, that it tells us where we're at and where our thinking needs to be changed. It tells us where our life needs to be rebuked and needs to repent and follow you. And it tells us that in encouragement, we can grow in the grace of God and we can give our brokenness to you and that in turn, you will give us righteousness in its place. And that, God, as we strive to live a life that honors you, that when the day comes, when we lived our life preparing for our death, when that day comes, that you will place a crown of righteousness on our head and you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That our life will have mattered, that we will outlive ourselves, that we will spend an eternity in joy and pleasures unknown because we poured ourselves out for the sake of you in this life. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen.